So this is very exciting to be back together, guys, in the house of in the house of the Lord together. Amen. So we are uh, going to be in First Thessalonians four today. I have a sermon prepared for one through eight. We are going to skip over that for today until a later time. That is a very important section about uh, holiness and sexuality. But we're going to be moving on to First Thessalonians four. 9 to 12 for today, and hold that sermon in our pocket for a later time. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. Paul says, Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So this little section of 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, this is like one self-contained thought that Paul is trying to get across. Related, but not, but, but fully capable of being independent from the first eight verses and kind of a self-contained teaching right at the end of chapter 4. The topic is, of course, contextual. We'll, we'll see that there's some of the context of wh- when Paul wrote this will make a difference, but it can easily be adapted to our circumstances in the church in 2020 as well. The topic is, once again, love. Or more specifically, this word Philadelphia, one of those, one of those words for love in the Bible, which means brotherly or sisterly love. It means family love, okay? So Philadelphia means family love. Um, it's much more than brotherly love. We've always heard Philadelphia as, as brotherly love, but it really is a, a neutered pronoun. So it's, it's men and women, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, family love. Anytime we see the word Philadelphia in the Bible, we should pause and try to understand specifically what the text is calling us to because love does not come naturally to us all the time. It's a shock, I guess, uh, but... Love does not come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is selfishness, self-seeking, taking. Uh, These are things that kind of come naturally to us many times. And sometimes even our uh, seemingly loving actions are really motivated by ourselves, right? So this word Philadelphia is is this word, and again, I think in culture it's, it's deceiving because we say falling in love, falling out of love. It seems like an easy thing for people to do that comes naturally to them, but you know, Certainly attraction between people comes naturally. You know, chemistry comes naturally. But actually loving people, um, as the Bible defines it, Philadelphia love, it's hard work. Um, Many times, in order to actually love people well, we have to uh, suppress our own impulses and desires in a given situation. We have to do that. And that's the work of love. Love is hard work. We, we, We talked on our outdoor service a couple Wednesdays ago about uh, Paul talking about being exhausted by love, more or less, that he was exhausted by his, um, his action of loving the church. But though this is the case, though it's hard work, Jesus Christ himself, who is God in the flesh, so very authoritative here, has clearly told us that all of the law and prophets of the entire Bible, the entire Bible, hang on this command to love God and to love other people. 
So it's very simple, but it's not easy, right? Since this is the command we are to follow, the command of loving God and loving others, I just always think whenever we find this word, we have to take some time to see exactly what the pastor is talking about so that we can fulfill our primary call to God and to other people, which is to love them. That's, that's our primary call. Let's go into this passage. You know, Paul begins with what appears to be this commendation in sort of a, a skipping over of a subject that he is saying the Thessalonian people already know and they're practicing. He says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Macedonia. This is kind of like a very diplomatic way to of catching more flies with honey than with vinegar, right? Paul is commending them. It's like a compliment sandwich saying, you're doing a good job. We don't need to teach you about this. But then he goes on to teach them about it. They feel like that's kind of human nature that we're more likely to kind of like rise to the occasion when someone commends us first and says, you're doing good, but, you know, here's some ways to hone this down. Paul is trying to coach the Thessalonians and also us on what it means to have family love, to Philadelphia love for one another in the church and also for the body of Christ in general. So he compliments the Thessalonians and at the same time encourages them to develop in areas of their love that need attention. And again, it's hard work. Our love actually needs our attention. We have to pay attention and work on our love. So first, the compliment. Paul says he is impressed that the Thessalonians have Philadelphia brotherly love, not just for the church in their own city, but also the entire country of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was the capital at the time. That's a pretty good commendation. Before Jesus came and the church was formed, this word for love, Philadelphia, was only used for brothers and sisters in families. It was only used in regard to your biological blood siblings and family. But the early church started calling each other brother and sister, probably in response to Jesus' own example in Matthew 12, when Jesus said, who are my brother, who are my mother and sisters? It's the people that do the will of God. So people in the church, taking a cue from Jesus, made this new idea of calling their brothers and sisters in Christ just that, brothers and sisters. And so Philadelphia went from being this family-only term to being uh, a church term that, that they used for each other. It was a very odd thing that had not been done before. So Paul is impressed, he says, with the family-like love that the Thessalonians have. And he actually goes on to exclaim that they have been taught by God, clearly. That he can tell they've been taught by God to love this way. And that's saying a lot. That's saying, you're doing a pretty good job. But then he goes on to say, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. To do so more and more. Even though this church had a family-like love for one another and for all the other members of Christ's church in Macedonia, Paul has a few points for these people to to think about. They'd like to share with them. It's supposed to express brotherly love more and more among them. Verse 11. And this all seems very odd when you first read it, but we're going to go through it and talk about it. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition, in verse 11, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's very interesting. You know, um, 
he says, your love for one another, your family love for one another. We don't need to write you. You've been taught by God. You love all God's family. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And this is how you are to do it. Lead a quiet life. Mind your business. <laughs> Paraphrase. Work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so you will not be dependent on anybody. That's kind of a surprising example of how to love more, to like live a quiet life, work with your hands. In order to express family love more and more, Paul says, one, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands. And then in verse 12, it says the goal of this, that the Thessalonians will walk in a manner that wins the respect of outsiders to the church, non-believers, and that they not be dependent on anybody or have need of anybody or have a need of anything. So let's tackle these one by one and see what God might be saying to us through this. First, Paul commands them to continue in family love by leading a quiet life. I've been telling my children this for a long time. Um, that's our Bible study every day with the kids. God wants you to lead a quiet life, and that's how you express your love for mom and dad. But why would this be a way to express this familial Thanksgiving love among the church? Since the inception of the church, as we saw earlier in First Thessalonians, there was persecution happening, right? The church was a small, persecuted minority group at this time. And believers were being persecuted. Any believer who remained active in the public arena, you know, socially, politically, otherwise, either on their own or functioning as a, um, as a representative of someone who was over them, any believer who remained active in the public arena ran the risk of exposing the church to further scrutiny. So this is like a big ask that Paul is making. He's saying you need to hold back on your public ambitions, whether in work or in profession, in order to love your fellow family members in the church by helping them to fall under the radar of the persecutors. That's a pretty big ask. Undoubtedly, the call to love in that way was a sacrifice for the people in the church, a big personal sacrifice for love. We do know that this church was largely a, a poor church, probably people that were, were tradespeople, but there were some people in that church that were influential and were, were patrons of the church. And Paul is saying, in your social, political sphere, your public persona, I want you to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands out of love for your fellow church members. Because if you are in these professions where people are looking at you and seeing you, it's going to draw attention to us and cause greater persecution and suffering. So Paul encourages the believers to instead lead a quiet life, to mind their own business, to attend to their own concerns. To lead a quiet life is to remove oneself from from the strife of public life and to live a more quiet life on their own. The second phrase, to mind your own business, means literally to withdraw from public matters, to devote time to your own private interests or give attention to that for which someone is best suited. Um, what, what that could mean, as far as Paul's thinking is, find what you're called to do in Christ and do that quietly and do that well. So out of love for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is calling the Thessalonian congregation to pull themselves out of the public arena because of the danger of bringing attention to this persecuted minority group of Christians 
and to focus their time and energy instead on the needs and building up of the congregation of the church. That's a real loving thing to do, to make a drastic change in your life in order to, to keep other people safe and to, um, to build up the church. The phrase to work with your hands is not talking about one specific kind of work, like manual labor versus desk job. It's simply putting forward this idea of extending yourself to actually work and produce as a means of providing for the needs of the individuals and the community at large. So Paul is saying, work with your hands quietly, um, privately, in order to take care of your own needs and the needs of the church in the context of this passage. So in summary, Paul is telling members of the church to keep a low profile, give attention to their own affairs, and to stay busy doing it. That's what Paul is saying. The goals Paul has in mind in verse 12 are that the Thessalonians will walk in a manner that wins the respect of the outsiders of the church, and that they not be dependent on anybody. So this low-profile, hard work, responsible way of doing things will make the community thrive and keep it safe in an environment of persecution, while at the same time it will provide opportunities for more outreach and evangelism as people see how the church takes care of one another. The second goal of the church was that the church uh, not be dependent on anybody. And uh, that, that seems very harsh, and I think it's important to look at what this means. It means two things. One, it's that no one in the church would be in debt to a patron and be forced to choose two masters. Um, if poorer people in the society could be sponsored by more wealthy members of the, of the society, and when they were sponsored by them, not only would that draw more, um, more scrutiny to the church itself, but also, they, the person would become divided and have to serve two masters. They'd have to represent the person that's their patron and also Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, in effect, he's saying, I don't want you to be dependent on anybody for the very same reasons. It'll divide your attention. It will also um, cause you to be, the second piece, an undue burden on one another in the church. Again, this is a small, largely poor, persecuted minority group. And we already see that Paul commended the church for loving each other. Well, so presumably, this is a generous church that gave a lot. And Paul was concerned that all of these loving, big-hearted Christians would end up suffering as a whole because they were making such an effort to care for the needs of each other, because people were not working as much as they needed to, that the church ends up not, they're not, ends up not being enough to go around. And then the whole thing implodes. Again, that draws more attention to the church. I think for us, you know, we should always, and I think Paul would say, we should always be inclined to financially support and help one another. Whenever we hear about a need, we should be thinking about how we can meet that need, have that same heart. But anyone who can work, Paul would say, should do so in order to be a person with, that has this goal of not only taking care of their own needs, but helping other people who have needs. And again, this is, a, this is also a respectful face of the church for the outside world to look into and see us taking care of one another. When people see Christians that are people who, who work hard to take care of their families and also work hard to take care of the needs of other people who cannot, for whatever reason, take care of their own financial needs, it's a really good witness to the community. It's an excellent witness to the community. And we have seen um, over the years of ministry here many outsiders come to church, come to New Life, through the Benevolence Fund, for instance. You know, people who have legitimate needs in our community. They're, they're, they're working a job really hard, full-time hours, but not enough to pay for living in this place that we live. And just one thing happens. A tire blows out in their car, and they need help. 
and to, to offer a no-strings-attached monetary blessing gift to people is a great witness for Jesus. And we've seen many people come to Christ through this ministry. So the way to look at you know, family love, according to Paul, is to work to support one's own needs, but with an eye always towards helping others in the family who have needs, and a desire to not take advantage of anybody in the body financially or otherwise, but always trying to be in a position to give and help one another in the family of Christ. Again, if Paul teaches the church everyone to do this, anyone who can work, work. Um, keep your head down, work hard with your hands, the chances are the church is going to be able to take care of itself in the ecosystem of the church. And um, that's very important that we be inclined to giving, that we be thinking about making money not just for ourselves, but for others. And uh, one of the ways that me and Jackie budgeted, and have budgeted in our, in our marriage, and right now we, we need to go through this process again. As many of you know, budgeting is like a thing you have to keep on reevaluating. But one of the wonderful seasons of budgeting was when we decided to put aside a certain amount of money every month to just have enough fund, and then if anyone needed it, we could give it to them. That's a super cool thing to do. Um, that can take the form of the benevolence fund at church. I think when we didn't use it personally, we put it in the benevolence fund, uh, whatever it was. But there's, there's a way to take care of your needs, even when you don't make a lot of money, and also put aside a little bit for other people. And uh, it's a great way to share the love of Christ with people. So in summary, the theme of this passage is family love, Philadelphia. Paul commends the congregation for doing it well and then says they need to start doing it more by leading a quiet life, minding their own business, working with their hands, and not being unduly dependent on anybody. The whole idea is to fly under the radar, not be persecuted, and to have enough for yourself and for other people. And in so doing, in general, the church gets taken care of. So this is all very contextual, right? This is like a, a teaching that Paul gave uh, to a church in a certain situation, right? How do we understand these commands and teachings in our days, in our ways, as modern followers of Christ? And I believe that every time you read the Bible, part of the interpretation, there's always going to be a nugget of the Word of God for you. The, part of the interpretation is looking at um, the, the context and then adapting it to your own context, you know? Not dismissing Scripture just because it's not relevant to you, seemingly. But find find the context, find what it meant to them, and then apply it to your life. So when we do that um, with this passage of the Word of God, one of the things that we see is that our situation is really quite different from, uh, in many ways, from the situation of the Thessalonian church. We are not a persecuted minority group here in Saratoga Springs, New York. I know that people feel like they are, sometimes as Christians. But we are not, at this point, a persecuted minority group in any way. We do not have the same dangers in one or another of us becoming a public figure. You know, there's no danger that's going to draw scrutiny to bring oppression to the church, you know, except for the ever-present danger of a public person falling morally, right? Uh, but we don't have the same kind of dangers as they had. And since, since it would seem that Paul's advice to lead a quiet life and mind your own business are motivated by a desire to protect the congregation by helping them to go under the radar... How are we to apply these verses as the Word of God to our situation in our day? So here's how I'd like to look at this. Verses 9 through 10 say, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. 
I think the first thing we need to ask ourselves as New Life Fellowship Church in 2020 in Saratoga Springs, New York, is if, if Paul looked at us, heard about us, would he have the same words of commendation as he did for the Thessalonian church? It's really good to see, to think about that. Do we at New Life Fellowship Church love each other until it hurts? Like a healthy, you know, blood relative family does. I know many people do not have healthy blood relative families, but in a healthy family, that when one member of the team is stuck, the team is stuck. When one person's hurting, the whole family hurts. Right? So, would Paul, looking at us, say, you at New Life have been taught by God to love one another as evidenced by how you act with one another. And then, you know, Paul goes on to exclaim, you know, further, and in fact, do you love all of God's family throughout Saratoga Springs, the capital region, New York, and the world? You know, these are not questions I'm going to answer for us this morning, but this is a bar that I think we need to look at, bar, the bar of Philadelphia love. And I think if we sat and had a round table and talked about how is New Life doing loving each other and loving our community, we would come up with both wonderful examples of us doing a good job with this and other examples where we fall into to laziness or forgetting about certain areas of love that we should be focusing on. Uh, we're not going to do that today, but I think what underlies our verse this morning, and what I think we can relate to, is this basis through which Paul advises Christians to make their big life decisions. In our, in our passage today, Paul takes it for granted that genuine love and concern for others, that family love for others in the church, will influence and even determine an individual's decisions, even the big important decisions. If you remember, uh, this, this is, of course, my, this is the verse that I always bring up as being my life verse. I, I, strive, to, I strive towards my own life. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 it seems to be the grid that Paul is making his commendations through. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is hard work. Again, this is something that applies in your marriage, applies in your friendships, applies in your church, applies in your job. You could take Philippians 2, 3, and 4, I'm, I'm, I'm always saying to people, and you could just sit with that verse for the rest of your life, and you would grow as a Christian in amazing ways. Do you value other people above yourself? Do you not look just to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others? In our passage today, I feel like Paul is, is going right through that grid. Paul says, in order to express family love well, some people, in one sort of more public job, maybe a higher paying job, should leave that arena in favor of a job that draws less possibility of danger to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is not Paul's word to us. This is Paul's word to the Thessalonians. But that's a big ask. That's a big, um, painful, perhaps, step of love that Paul's asking them to take. He says, you know, you've been living this public life, it's time to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, take care of your own business, so as not to be a burden on others, and also to help uh, other members who may be lacking in resources. So what Paul seems to be saying is that to love more and more, as he says, with this Philadelphia love, this family love, it will require a surrender of one's rights for the good of others. And it's that idea of, of living out of not looking to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have to empty ourselves of selfish ambition and move towards the self-giving love of Christ on the cross. The ultimate, the ultimate emptying was Christ on the cross. Philippians 2 is about Christ on the cross. It's about Christ's 
It's about God becoming a man in order to live his life and die as a sacrifice for our sins. An em- a true emptying. To live out this idea of Christ on the cross every day. The self-giving love. And I think that's Philadelphia. We should be underlying this Philadelphia family love, the self-giving love of Christ, should underlie all the decisions that we make as Christians. In our, in our country, Christians are, are not a minority group, as I said. You'd, be very, you'd probably be surprised to see the statistics. Um, we, are, we are 65%, according to people self-evaluating, Christian in, in the United States. I think it might be a little less now. That's down from 82% in 2001. So that's a pretty big drop, right? Uh, but we're, we're still 65%. Um, perhaps we don't have the same dangers as the church in Thessalonica, where we should be avoiding the public sphere out of love and concern for our fellow church members. You know, it could be that Paul's advice to us in our day would be opposite to what he told the Thessalonians. Perhaps in our country, in our time, in our context, more public engagement would be advised by Paul. Um, and maybe it's even needed in order for the church to thrive and win the uh, respect of outsiders. Maybe we need to be speaking up rather than being silent on cultural issues that inundate us week after week in love. These are the kinds of questions that I'm always uh, throwing back and forth in my own mind. How much do you get involved in the political sphere where it is very, it's a very scary place to be? How much do you say? How much do you do? And, uh, and I always think that um, given our, our place as not a persecuted minority, but as a majority, and given the fact that sometimes it's seen, it's um, sometimes the ways that we are not respected by outsiders, or they, they criticize us and say, you guys don't actually do anything for the issues in society that are a problem, and instead you're just worried about heaven all the time. And maybe the way to win the respect of outsiders is to, is to participate in more civic engagement. I could see that being a possibility. I think that uh, from my personality type, I would love to just take this verse from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, and say, see, Christians should just fly under the radar, lead quiet lives, avoid the public spotlight, and these difficult public conversations. But because of the context of today's verse, I, I do not think that that's the advice that Paul gave to us. I think that in order to win the respect of the outsiders, the, the family love thing to do in our day is to sometimes speak up to show up in love when needed. In love is the key word, so this is, has to be done carefully. And that's a, that's a whole different conversation for another time, but for today's sermon, what does it mean to make all of our individual decisions as Philadelphia family love? Going on in the passage, talks about um, this idea of leading a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands. Paul makes it crystal clear in other places in the Bible, in his writings, uh, we're going to see in Second Thessalonians 3, 6-13, a teaching on this, that believers should not be idle. We should not be idle. He calls, he calls people there idle busybodies. And his teaching seems to be, in general, that a lot of people, that, that um, a lot of people in his context were mooching and not working for their food. And instead, they'd become disruptive and spreading unhelpful talk around the church. And Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's his whole thing in, in 2 Thessalonians 3. So though that's Paul's mindset, we see in Romans 12, 13, that we have to be devoted to one another in love and to honor one another above ourselves. And it says in 13, to share with the Lord's people who are in need, practicing hospitality. 
Christians are absolutely supposed to work with the intention of having enough to support themselves and also put aside some to help other people. And sometimes, regardless of if a person works but cannot make enough, or if a person is unable to work for legitimate reasons, the body of Christ gets to fill in the gap financially and support people who cannot support themselves for whatever reason. And in our, in our world that we live in, I honestly believe that sometimes even two people working full-time minimum wage jobs is not enough. It's just really a difficult environment to live in. So we have this huge two-way blessing where we as the church have set aside money to help other people and, and be blessed by helping them, and then those people can be blessed and have their needs met by the Church of Christ. And again, that is, a, uh, that is something that is a huge testimony to the world when we're able to do that. So, of course, Paul, Paul says, don't be idle, don't be a busybody, work with your hands, but for those who just can't make ends meet, be ready, be ready to help. Now, Jesus made it very clear, and it's affirmed by the later writers of Scripture, including the Old Testament, that the great commandment is to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Matthew 22 says, uh, 35 to 40, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So when it comes to our love, it's supposed to be this family love for one another that comes from God. I love another scripture that says, do everything in love. Do everything in love. Paul makes it so clear in our passage today that what we consider our most personal decisions um, are actually a stewardship. Everything belongs to God. We are only his caretakers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, it's our holiness and our sexuality. You can consider that to be an, uh, a very personal topic that um, no one gets to speak to, but God speaks to it. Uh, we consider this area of our work, our profession, our money, a personal, no-touch area. But again, um, these personal decisions about how we use, how we work, how we use our money, are things that God has stuff to say about. He wants us to be available to him. So when it comes to our choice of occupation, when it comes to how we spend our time, when it comes to how we budget our money, I think that uh, our passage today would lead us to think about how we can express family love to both the body of Christ and the world and how we think about our money. Not uh, putting everything into the materialism of the world, you know, cars and houses and families and that kind of thing, but to think not just what is my job, but what is my calling before God, doing that, and then thinking about brotherly love whenever you think about your money, about your job, and the things you do. I don't think that we're supposed to shrink away from the workplace just because in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul says to do everything privately and quietly. I think that was contextual, but I do think that uh, we are called to take these traditionally private areas of our life and our money, our job, you know, our sexuality, everything that we are, and we're supposed to put them to the grid of brotherly love and family love. So this is a huge uh, challenge to us to put everything through this grid. But I think God's word to us today is 
when it comes to anything that you do, do everything in love, whether that be something you consider a very private decision or something that you would put more in line of the church. Do everything in love for one another. The, the protection of the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You now, some of our measures we put in place here are, are to do everything in love for other people. How we budge our money, how we think about our relationships, the jobs that we work, do everything in love. Don't just go for, um, you know, a certain type of career or job because of the money, but find what your calling is and do it. I have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think when we, when we love like this, there's always enough. There's always enough for everybody. And I close with a, with a reading from 1 John. And we will actually be closing a little bit early today. 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of the judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so want to live up to this, these commands that you've given us to love you and to love other people. I pray you would, um, you would, you would uh, work in our imagination, Lord, that we would consider what this work of love looks like for us. In, in, in these ever-widening spheres, God, first of all, what does it look like to love you with all of our heart, just you and us as an individual? How do we show our love for you in this, in this very small sphere of just our relationship with you? Then perhaps a spouse or the other members of a household we live in, a roommate, family members. How do we love these people and love them well and do the work of love for them, preferring them above ourselves, looking not to our own, only to our own interests, but also to the interests of these people, and widening, Lord, over our, over our church family, how do we love our church family well? How can we be like Christ for one another, as First John says? How can we put the interests of people in our church above our own? How can we provide for the needs of people that need help? How can we do work that is also our calling before you? 
and these circles widen and widen. But God, I want you, I just pray that you'd work in our imaginations that this week you would help us to love as you have loved us by emptying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following you. We do pray that uh, the love that you produce in us and that we work for towards each other would be something that, that people on the outside take notice of. That they would know that we have been with Christ because of how we love. We so, we so desire that the world know Jesus. And we pray that you would uh, help us to begin to move in such a way that the world cannot deny that the love that we have is born from the heart of love of God who is called love. So we lift these things up, God. Give us brotherly love, family love for one another, and let us love um, until we are worn out from it, God, to glorify Jesus, to make fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church. Great to see you all. God bless.